Praise God. What awesome worship this morning. Well, take your Bible, if you have it with you, turn to the book of Ephesians for the last time for a little while. This is the final installment of our beloved identity series as we've been working through Ephesians. And today it's all coming full circle. It's all coming together. If there's anything that we have learned in this series as we've been seeing our identity in Christ, it's that God loves you. We have seen that again and again and again. You have been chosen by the Father. You've been redeemed by the Son. You have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. As we have seen the truths and the doctrine that's in Ephesians, we are told all the way back in Ephesians 1 that you've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the Beloved. And there's a song that's been pretty popular lately. It's called Hands On. And in this song, you may have heard it, uh, there's a little phrase in there, don't just read halfway through Ephesians. And that's because as we've entered the second half of Ephesians, we've gone past just the truth of who you are in your identity in Christ, and we're actually getting the practical, applicational to-dos, what we need to do with those truths, how we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And in this last sermon in this series, in this Beloved Identity series, we're going to see how you can live out your identity by imitating God's love. Live out your beloved identity by imitating the love of God. It's so beautiful, and this is the entire sermon. It's about love. But let me just tell you, give you a heads up on this. It's not all as warm and fuzzy as it may sound right now. As we get into this text, and here's why. The world doesn't fully grasp love. As a matter of fact, the world has a twisted and perverted view of true love. And that is something that affects even us who have a beloved identity, even us Christians, as we, as we interact with our friends and our coworkers and movies and written literature and music, you name it, we are being bombarded by something that is in opposition to the character of God, and it's a twisted version of what true love is. So we are being warned in this passage not to be deceived by the perversion that's out there that relentlessly attacks your identity in Christ. So being totally upfront, this is not going to be an easy sermon to hear and to listen to. This wasn't an easy sermon to prepare, but we cannot afford to mess up love. We have to know what true love is. We have to know where we stand with love, and we have to get that right. So let's go to the text, first of all, and see what God's Word says about living out your beloved identity by imitating the love of God. Ephesians 5, verse 1. And you may think, well, David, you said this series is in Ephesians. There's like two more chapters in Ephesians. We're going to come back to Ephesians later on this year. We're going to have a series on relationships. Then we're going to have a series on spiritual warfare to finish up this book. But right now, we're going to read all the way through verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But... 
Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Do you see what I mean? It's a heavy text today. It's a heavy text for very good reason. How do you imitate God? Well, verse 2, that's where we're going to start. First of all, verse 2, this is, this is everything. This is so beautiful. You imitate God, verse 2, by walking in love as Christ loves you. And how, he, how did he love us? He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we see throughout Scripture that we are point one to reflect Christ's love. This is how it all starts. This is what we, this is what we, this entire series has been about. But here it is again as we come full circle. Reflect the love of Jesus Christ. That's how you imitate God. It's so beautiful. It's so perfect. In 1 John that we see that we love because he first loved us. He was the one who initiated this love. And we also see that our love for God grows the more we see how much he loves us. So the more time we spend with him, the more we meditate on his word and we see what he's done in our lives, how he's changed us, the automatic result of that, the fruit of that is we love God more to a deeper degree. Think about all the ways that we are presented with Christ's love in Scripture. Uh, first, first way that I, I want to bring up is Christ's love for us, it was undeserved. It'd be one thing if we obeyed everything God ever asked us to do, if we, if we brought people into him and we just lived this amazing life apart from God before we even knew him, but that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case for any of us. Every single one of us before we knew Jesus Christ, actually did the exact opposite. Instead of running to God, we turned our back on God. We went the other direction, okay? But he loved us anyway, even though we didn't deserve that love. He hunted us down. And we're going to fly through this, this section here, but Christ's love for us was also voluntary. This is another beautiful aspect of his love for you and me. I mean, how willing are you to love someone if if a car insurance company pays you $15,000 because you got in a car accident, we wouldn't call that love. They're just fulfilling a legal obligation, right? I mean, they had, it, wasn't, it wasn't really a choice for them. Jesus willfully chose, and he volunteered his life on the cross to pay for our sins. He did it out of his own volition, and that shows how much he loves us. Jesus' love was also costly. It cost him dearly. It was more than bruises. It was more than getting a few names. It was all that. But Jesus gave his life. He, he was tortured on a cross, agonizing. He, he gave up his equality with God, as we see in Philippians 2, when he became a man and came down to this dirty, sin-cursed world. 
That's what he did for you and me. And then Jesus' love is lavish. His love for us is so great. You can really measure the love for someone by the greatness of how, how much you're receiving and is a benefit, right? If you're helped to pass a test, that's great. Thank you. I love you for that. You helped me study. You helped me figure this out. I passed the test. If you uh, are given a job, wow, that's even better. You gave me a job so I can provide my, fa- my family. I'm thankful. That was, that was amazing. If you rescue somebody from slavery, that's even bigger of a deal. If you deliver someone from eternal separation from God and torment, it doesn't get any greater than that. His love for us was lavish. It was exorbitant. It was, it, we can't get any bigger. We just can't. And we could park here all day, and this would be the nicest, sweetest sermon I've ever preached. It would be so easy. I wish we could do that. Just, we could. We could literally, for the rest of time, talk about his love for us. And that's something that we should be meditating on and thinking about. But here's the challenge. The challenge is, as you can see in verse 2, that he is calling you to love other people the same way. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. So we have to love people unconditionally. We should be loving people sacrificially. This this is not an easy thing to actually execute. (laughs) This is a really big deal. And to not put any conditions on it, to to not uh, pick people out and just love the people that that are lovely and that we want to love, that's not very easy to do. And what's sobering about this is when you think about it, so much of our love... And so much of the love that you see in the world today is more of a transactional kind of love than it is just an unconditional, self-sacrificing sort of love. I mean, you like my Instagram page, and I'll like your Instagram page. You know, you, you do a favor for me, help me find this legal loophole, I owe you one. I mean, okay, there's nothing wrong with that, great. But you can't define that as love. Our love shouldn't be this transaction where, hey, if I do something for you and I treat you well and I love you, I expect you to love me back. That's not the way Christ loved us. He didn't expect anything in return. He gave his life and we brought nothing to the table. Jesus' love for us is agape love. It's a choosing. It's an action verb that says, I love you no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do. I love you unconditionally. That's a feeling that will not go away. And that's true love. It's rare. And the truth is, it's always been rare in the world, that kind of love. So right away, the challenge for us is, it's getting heavy immediately, right? Don't give up on people. Buy lunch for somebody who can't pay you back. Give, sacrifice, and don't expect anything in return. That is a fragrant offering in a sacrifice, it's a pleasing aroma to God. It's a good place to, to be when you say, I love God because he loved me, and I'm going to love you back. So, Jesus loves. But in verse 3, we see a but there, and, and this is where the tone starts shifting. This is where the transition comes in. Because, yes, Jesus loved perfectly, but that didn't mean that Jesus got along perfectly with everyone. It was impossible to get along perfectly with everyone. 
because not everyone is following the way of Jesus Christ and following God's plan. And this is where we get our second point. Point number two, as we see verses three and four, reject counterfeit love. There is a perversion of love that's in the world today that we have to have no part of. Verse six, again, it warned us, do not be deceived. It's not spelling that out for us in black and white, all caps, if this wasn't a very real danger for people who have a beloved identity, that we can get messed up in the way we look at love. We have to love people. We can't reject people. I'm not saying here that we're rejecting people, okay? When I say reject counterfeit love, I'm not talking about that at all. You can love someone without accepting every single thing about their life, without accepting every single one of their decisions. And honestly, it's a fallacy to think, and this is one of the, another, another one of the lies of the world, that you have to accept me 100%. You have to agree with everything I say. You have to be an advocate for every one of my desires to love me. That's not true in any facet of life. It's not true here either. You can still love the person, and you can actually reject the sinful decision and lifestyle that is keeping them from the love of God, right? We can love them anyway. The world does not have the right view of love, um, and they attack us with, with, you know, a lot of times there's a silver lining of truth mixed in with air, but they have a distorted fleshly view of what God says love is. And remember a couple weeks ago we saw this in, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 20, and I just want to remind you of this right here on the screen. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. We can't forget this. They look at love a different way. Let's reread verses three and four here, because this, this is where we're at on this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The world wants you to think that pornography is fine. The world wants you to think that premarital sex is just love. The world wants you to think that same-sex marriage is completely equal, and it's the exact same thing. The world, I mean, it could, we could go on and on. The world wants to tell you that open relationships are just fine. It's just another element, just another, just another way you can love. There's a contrast between what God says love is and what the world says love is. And we cannot mix the world system that is in opposition to God, that is bombarding us, and we can't call what God says evil good. Did God create the human body to be beautiful? 100% yes, he did. Absolutely, you better believe that. He created, he created male and female, and our, and our bodies are beautiful. But, that doesn't mean that nakedness is appropriate in every situation, in every place. There's a time and a place for it, right? God created sex. It's a great gift. But there's a place for sex, 
And there's a place where sex actually should not be. So it can be a good gift that turns into something that's actually harmful and destructive when we take it out of its God-given place. Sex outside of the union of a committed relationship with a man and a woman is not the way God intended it to be. It's not what he created it for. And every counterfeit love has something in common. Listen to this. Every counterfeit love is more about you getting what you want and less about you giving someone else sacrificially. I love the kids' noises in there. Isn't that awesome that the kids can praise God too? Right when we're talking about the heaviest thing you can possibly talk about. <laughs> Every counterfeit love, sexual immorality, is the opposite of the self-sacrificial love of Christ. Because we're not thinking about how I can serve someone else, how I can give to someone else. That, that's not the same kind of love. It's more about what pleases me, what gratifies my desires, what do I want. And these terms here that we see, they're broad catch-all terms. The, the term here, sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. Uh, this word impurity, it's, the, it's this idea of gross, perverted, twisted nastiness. You take something that's a good gift of God, sex, and you twist it and you turn it into something that's ugly and, and sick because you've put it out of place. These are broad, sweeping terms that, I mean, yeah, does the Bible talk about friends with benefits? Well, it doesn't say that phrase. That phrase is included in this right here. This is the catch-all broad term. And when it says covetousness, it's, again, obviously talking about sexual greed. I know I'm not supposed to have this, but I want it. So I'm going to go for it anyway. That's the kind of thinking that ruins marriages. This is the kind of thinking that leads people to prison because they want what they, they, they just desire it and they want to have it. And I know we're talking about something here that is obviously a sensitive issue that is probably triggering some people because you've, maybe you've you have been on the receiving end of covetous, selfish, wicked sexual immorality before. And I want you to know that God loves you, God sees it, and he is going to judge it one day. No one is ever going to get away with this kind of stuff. And if this, is, if this is hard for you and this is a really tough thing to even hear and to listen to, I, I get it. And I want you to know the reason we're talking about it is because it's a real issue that every single person faces. We all face it to a different varying degree. You may have already disagreed with something I said today. The truth is, we're looking at what God's word says. And what God's word says is the opposite of what the world says. The world's view of, of, of love and sex is honestly upside down from the way God has intended sex to be. Sexual intimacy is designed to be a wonderful, life-giving act in marriage. It binds a man and a woman together. It's, it's wonderful. Um, there's the, when, when you follow sex the way God intended sex to be, there's no STDs. 
They're, they're, it, it, it works in harmony. It's, it's like a puzzle piece that's just coming together. It knits two souls together. There's pleasure. There's euphoria. We, we preached a sermon on this like earlier in the year when we were going through our series in 1 Corinthians. And, and in 1 Corinthians 6, the sermon was, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud again. That was the name of the sermon. Go back and, go back and read 1 Corinthians 6. It's, it makes it as plain as day. It's so clear. Like, if, if you are married, great. Don't defraud one another. Don't resist sex in, in the marriage between a husband and a wife. And if you really want to have sex, don't be inflamed with passion. It's better to marry than to be inflamed with passion. Uh, it's the bond of marriage is a beautiful place for this. First Corinthians seven verse one says, I, I think I have this one up here. Yeah, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, the Bible spells it out. This is something where when you have sexual intercourse, you are releasing oxytocin. You are binding your souls together. You're giving something of yourself to another person that they will always have. You're knitting your souls together. That's made for the marriage covenant. That's not meant to be casual. That's not something we should just throw around. Culture does, does not understand the power of sex because they have cheapened it. But we can't be deceived by those same lies. Listen, God is not holding out on you. If you think, oh, I have to wait for sex, I may never have sex. Listen, Satan has used this lie that you're missing out on something from the very beginning. You remember Satan in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve? Did God really say this? If you eat of this fruit, you'll be like the gods knowing good and evil. Well, yeah, there was some partial truth there. They did understand good and evil, but they also did something was they, when, they, when they broke God's command. What God has for you is so much better. Self-sacrificing love is so much better, so much more fulfilling and beautiful than self-serving love. And we all have fallen desires. Every single one of us struggles with this issue in different ways. I realize some people, they're battling uh, same-sex attraction. And that's a result of the fall. Some of us battle pornography addiction. That's a result of the fall. It gets darker and darker. We won't, we won't go there. You know this. But throughout the Bible, we see sex as compared to a fire. It's all, it, it, it's all the time it's compared to a fire. Solomon compares it to a fire. Paul compares it to a fire. I mean, we just saw it in 1 Corinthians 7 here. But a fire, if you have a fire inside a fireplace... It's great, right? You feel those good vibes with me for a second? Like, think about it. You've got the blanket. You've got a hot cup of tea. You can just fall asleep at 7.30 p.m. if you're by a warm fire on a November night. I love fireplaces. But if you take that fire outside of the fireplace and you put it in the middle of your living room, well, you have a problem on your hands, right? It can burn the whole house down because it's not in its proper place. Sex is, a power, is powerful, but outside of its God-given place, it will wreak havoc on things. And God wants to give you the best version of sex. Remember we talked about this? When God says don't, he just means it's just short for don't hurt yourself. He doesn't want you to face the loneliness. He doesn't want you to feel betrayed. He doesn't want you to feel used. He intends for us 
to be knitting our souls together with this. What a great gift that it is. I mean, we have to operate a car the way our, our car manual says we should operate the car, right? Things go wrong when you put things in the tank that shouldn't be in the tank. One time I was, uh, when I lived in Colorado, I was, I don't even think I was married yet. Julie and I had just bought our bed that we still have. And uh, I need to transport this bed from the warehouse that I ordered it on Amazon to our house. And I didn't have a truck, so a guy in my church let me borrow his truck. I'm like, I'll be a good person. I'll fill up this truck since he let me borrow his truck. And I go to the gas station. It's a new truck. I'm, I'm just thinking about the fact that I'm getting married soon and I have a bed. I'm excited. I'm not really thinking clearly. I put diesel in this guy's truck. And I, I realized after like six gallons, I'm like filling it up. I was like, wow, this is weird. The nozzle's kind of big for this guy's truck. And, and six gallons in, I'm like, oh, no. What did I just do? I stopped. I filled it up with more gas, like regular gas. And then I started being really jerky. I kept slamming the brakes, trying to let the, the good gas slosh around in the tank. I stopped another couple miles down the road, filled up more gas with it. It got a little bumpy on the highway there for about 10 minutes. It was, like, not good. I was, like... I was an idiot back then. I didn't even tell the guy. But thankfully, the car was fine. <laughs> I, always took, I always asked him, like, the next few Sundays, hey, is your car doing all right? No. I didn't really, I wasn't that obvious about it. But I did. I was very curious. <laughs> What's going to happen to your car? I'll own up if something bad happens. We're getting off track here, but you, you, we need a little levity in this, this heavy topic. Don't put something in the tank that doesn't need to be there. Something that's out of place, it's not going to go well. When we follow God's guidelines, it's beautiful, it's liberating, it's fulfilling. When we make our own rules, there's so much more room for sorrow. There's even room for addiction. And I've talked to so many people who are just in the throes of it, and it's no fun. We have to be serious about this topic. If you've made mistakes here about this, if you've made mistakes about this in the past, I got some good news for you, though, okay? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Look, we have all made mistakes here, and I don't want you to feel guilty about this because every single person in this room, I don't care what you've done, I mean, Jesus Christ said it, if you have, if you have thought impure thoughts in your mind and you've gone there in your mind, it's the same thing. You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says that, right? So we all struggle in different ways. We've all battled this. The truth is, our God is a God of forgiveness and redemption and restoration, and he makes all things new. You don't need to have shame. You don't need to feel beat up. Yeah, purity isn't easy. It's not easy for anyone. This is a real battle. This is a real fight. I mean, Julie and I, before we were married, we, we had a tough battle with this. And I mean, we didn't cross the finish line to the marriage altar the way I wish we would have. There were some mistakes that were made. By God's grace, we have a fulfilled marriage. And there, I, I'm thankful that we were able to abstain completely from the ultimate thing that we could have done. And here's the truth. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done in the past, it's under the blood if you know Jesus Christ. And he doesn't look at you because, with, through, through the eyes of your mistakes. He looks at you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you're a child of God, if you have a beloved identity, 
he has imputed Christ's righteousness onto your account. And God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So never be ashamed. Your life isn't ruined. Just get it right and pursue Christ. You just make a new decision. You turn it around that way. Put it under the blood and you move forward. Never listen to Satan because he wants to attack us in this way. And do you remember again what, what, what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? When they messed up, they sinned. Adam and Eve, they're hiding. They're, they're, they're in shame. God calls out for them. Adam, Eve, where are you? He sought them out. Same thing with the prodigal son in the New Testament. We see that parable where the father represents God the father. What does the father in that parable do? He's looking every single day waiting for his son to come back and he sees his son that one day far off and he runs after him. That's the heart of our God. If you're struggling, if you're in an addiction right now, if you're battling through something, it's okay to struggle with it. Everybody's struggling with it. We're not trying to make you feel bad about the, of the struggle. The struggle is real. Just know that you have a God who loves you and he's there to help you. There's no condemnation. It's under the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Just one more scripture passage. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's your beloved identity. And let's look at verse four again. So because of all of this, verse four, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Does that seem like it's slightly coming out of left field to you? When I first read that one, well, okay, I'm not going to have crude joking. Instead, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving season right now. This is perfect timing on this. I mean, I'm ready to eat some turkey this week. I know you are too. This is not the kind of thanksgiving it's talking about, obviously. We all know that. So what is this doing here? Why does he say put in thanksgiving? If you think about it, just start piecing two and two together. God is saying here that if you can't give thanks for something, you need to put it away. If you can't actually enjoy this with God and say, God, thank you for this gift. This is awesome. Thank you. Praise you. If, if you can't say that about the show you're watching or the activity that you're gauge, engaging in or the place that you're going, if you can't give thanks for it, you probably shouldn't actually be doing it. That's what he's saying. It's a really easy rule of thumb to actually start eliminating some of these things. What is a crude joke? Where do I draw the line? Well, can you say it in front of Christ? Can you give thanksgiving for that? Replace all of that with things that you say, yes, this is building me up. This is bringing me closer to Christ. That's what you need. The wrong question is to ask, is this sin? If you're just asking that question, you're asking the wrong, you're asking the wrong question. Are cards against humanity a sin? I know we're all thinking about that, right? Right now, with this text, we have to be thinking about that. Instead, why don't you ask the question, can I give thanks for this? Is this bringing me closer to Christ? If it's not helping me, I should probably find something else that is helpful for me, God's best for me. 
And this is, this is where sometimes Satan tears us down. He attacks us by tearing us down. Oh, you're worthless. You messed up. You're ashamed. That's a lie. We already covered that one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The other way that Satan attacks us in this one, though, is the flip side is, hey, you're fine. You can handle it. You're mature in Christ. It's not going to affect you like it affects other people. Also a lie, Right? Let's go to another inflaming with passion illustration. Proverbs 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You know the obvious answer to this. Don't think you are some superhuman that no other person in the history of the world has been able able to actually achieve where you can actually do all this, this stuff and, and not have it affect the way you think. And back in 1 Corinthians 7, when it says um, to avoid sexual relations, the Greek in that passage is actually kindling a fire. So it's, it's talking about the things that you would do in, in foreplay, what you do with your hands, what you do with your mouth. Those are the kind of things that you as a Christian need to be aware of and to be careful about. That's the warning that it's giving you. You know what's sad about Christians sometimes? Can we just be real about each other? To each other here on this? The sad thing is sometimes we can be weird about things where we should be normal. And we're normal about things where we should be weird. According to the world. Think about this with me, right? Like, can you believe she's wearing that? all right, we're going down this weird path because basically what you're wearing is like two inches different of material. And there's, uh, there's really not a whole lot. No one else is really noticing a big difference. But, but we're being so like, oh, I can't believe she did that. I can't believe he said that. Come on, Christians. Like, let's not be weird about every single last little thing. Instead, let's be weird in the areas where the world says, this is fine. This is great. Go for it. What's your problem? How could you have an issue with this? You know what? I'm going to have to embrace my awkwardness a little bit here. I'm going to have to be weird because the Bible says this is a really big deal. And actually, I think about it totally different than you think about it. I don't think the same way I used to think. So we, we have to realize that we shouldn't be talking Game of Thrones with the best of them. If you're doing that, there's, I don't know how you can be that thankful for that, honestly. That's just the question I have for you that you can answer yourself. But there's some things that we should be weird about to the world around us. And go ahead. Give thanks for what you need to give thanks for and be different. You're going to make a difference in this world if you do that. If you think the church is irrelevant because we're different, you're missing it, okay? That's not the reason that the church is ever irrelevant. If the church is irrelevant, it's because we aren't being different, the way we should be different. So be weird about the right things, not about the things that you should be normal about. Don't feel like you have to fit in and align your thoughts with the world's. They should be different because the world is lost and they need to change. They need Jesus and we're the ones who have Jesus. We're the ones who can give them Jesus. I told you this was heavy, right? (laughs) I mean, is this not the heaviest sermon you've heard me preach in a while? 
This one, this one took me a while to prepare, to think through. I wasn't really looking forward to this, to be totally honest. But the truth is staring us in the face right here in this text. And secondly, it would be disservice to some of you and to all of us, really, if I glossed over the truth. We can, none of us can take this and just run, run away from it. It's not loving to make you feel good about sin, and we all are dealing with this, and we all have to find our identity in Christ. We can't imitate God's love if we have embraced the worldly counterfeits of love. That's what this text is saying. Just remember that. We can't imitate God's love if we have embraced the worldly counterfeits of love. Here's our last point from verses five through seven, and I wish you could say it's about ready to get more happy, but it's actually still not. We're almost there. But point three is rest in your inheritance of love. Look at verses five and seven again, since we've, we've been all over the place. So let's get back to Ephesians. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be, excuse me, I lost my place. Therefore, do not be, do not associate with them, right? Is that what it says? Therefore, do not associate with them. What a way to make this point. Let's be clear, though. People who live this way, who are living out their own sexual desires, they are living for the wrong inheritance. And it, to call what they're going to re- receive an inheritance is, is putting it nicely, all right? We, are an, we, as people who have a beloved identity in Christ, have a completely different eternal destination. And we cannot confuse that. We cannot forget that. Every person, this is... This is the sad, sobering truth. But every person who has turned their back on Christ and chosen a life of sexual gratification and they've turned on God's way and they've, if they've just totally gone for their way, verse 5 says, be sure of this. They have a different inheritance and it's not the inheritance of the kingdom of God. We are told here, do not be deceived by empty words. Okay, what are empty words? Well, they're just words with no backing. Okay, when you feel something, when you think something, that may be true, that may actually be a little incorrect. We need to go to something that has weight, that has reliability, that is sure and fast, the word of God. The word of God are not, is not empty. And this is the truth from God's character. He will judge anything that's in opposition to his character. That's who he is. He will judge sin. And the twisted violation of his gift of sex is in opposition to who he is. It's not our job to judge people. God's going to take care of that one day. And this is not easy to say, but people who worship their own sexual desires, they will get what they're asking for in the end. They will get what they're asking for. They will get separation from God. This is not, this passage is not here to make you afraid, okay? 
God's not trying to scare you. If you're a genuine follower of Christ and you're worried, oh my word, am I, am I, am I, am I doing right? Am I on the right path? I messed up once and I, I've been messing up a few times and I'm battling this. This is not for you to doubt your salvation or to fear or to worry. You do not need to fret. As a matter of fact, if you are convicted of your sin, if, if you're feeling the weight of that, that's a really good sign because that shows that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, all right? But this is for people, this is a warning to someone who doesn't care. They, they, it doesn't even bother them. There's a warning for you here because you're going down the wrong path. We will all have slip-ups, but the righteous falls six times and gets up seven. That's the truth that you have to remember. And when it says do not associate, wow, that's pretty harsh language, right? That's pretty confusing. Do not associate with them. I thought we were supposed to love people. We are. All over Scripture, it tells us that. So whenever you see something that's confusing in Scripture, you got to do a couple things. You have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So you go back to what does God's Word clearly say somewhere else? This is confusing me a little bit. I don't know, I don't know quite what he means by do not associate with them. So what do I already know? What is crystal clear about, about what God has told me to do? And God has for sure told me to love people. He for sure told me to love people that are in the world who need to know Jesus and to actually get to know them to be salt and light, right? So it can't be saying never talk to them. I mean, Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians 2. If you'd have to go out of the world if that was the case. He's not saying separate in that sense. So it's not saying that. We have to go to the immediate surrounding context. That's the other point of biblical interpretation when you're in a hard point. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Cross off, I know it can't mean this. I know it can't mean this. And what does the immediate context say? Well, we're in this whole passage about not being an advocate for something that is going to keep someone from God. Right? There is, there is a twisted view of love out there that is actually taking someone to a place where they're not going to have the inheritance of love. They're going to actually have separation from God. And if that's the case, I can't be for that. That's what I'm not going to associate with. That's what's, that's what's going on here. Worship team, you can come up now. We're almost done. Um, and I tell you, as, as I prepared this sermon, whenever I have a text on, on sexual temptation, almost without fail, I feel like distractions just come out of the woodwork. Like car problems, batteries dying. I had to charge, charge the van like three times with Julie this week. Um, we just phone calls out the wazoo. This has not been an easy thing to talk about. I know it's not been an easy thing to listen to, but the worst thing that you could ever do with a sermon like this is just try harder. That's not what we see in the text. That's not what I'm telling you to do. If you just try to work harder work smarter, you know what you're going to do? You're going to feel guilt. You're going to feel shame. You're not going to fix it. And you're just going to feel horrible about yourself. And you're going to be depressed. We have to run to Jesus. We have to pray harder, for sure. Be more diligent about confessing sin. Yes, let's do that as well. But you have to go back to this truth right here for the rest of your life. Ephesians 5, verse 1. This is where it's at, right here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Yes, there's people in our life that don't understand us, that think we're weird. 
Yes, we have internal conflicts, and sometimes the things that we want to do, we don't do, and the things that we don't want to do, and we know it's, it's the wrong thing, we still are tempted to do that. Yes, it's a battle, but part of your beloved identity means I know that I have an inheritance of love, and I'm going to focus on the fact that God loves me, and he has a plan for me. I'm not going to even deal with this shame and this guilt. It's under the blood. I'm going to put it away. Forget about it. And imitate God as a beloved child, because that's your beloved identity. When you, when you think about how kids imitate their parents, it's just a fact, right? They do. And it's, it's kind of scary when you see one of your kids throwing a temper tantrum and they actually say something that you've said when you're angry. That's one of the most terrifying things in the world. But it's, but it's beautiful and it's amazing when you see your kid just doing something that you've done just, just because they love you. That's, that's really sobering. Uh, Beckham and Paxton and I went with, with my grandmother to Cracker Barrel a few weeks ago because, of course, she wanted to go to Cracker Barrel because that's what grandmas want to do. And, uh, and she chose to buy them a toy at Cracker Barrel. I always hated going to Cracker Barrel as a kid because I always had to wait forever for my food, and my parents never bought me something from the country store. But these little guys got to pick something out. Paxton picked out a Star Wars shaving kit. <laughs> so he's using my shaving cream. He's got this little black plastic razor, and he loves it. He, like Every day he's like, Dad, can I use your shaving cream? And he like gets shaving cream all over his face and very streaks everywhere. It's just a mess every time. But it's cute, right, because he's imitating his father. That, that's, I don't even know what to say about that. It just, it's heartwarming, right? The same way that kids imitate their parents, that's what we do with God. And we've seen his love for us, right? We've seen it this whole series. Oh, how he loves us. I mean, he has lavished out the gifts of love. He has redeemed us. He's made us new. He's sealed us in the promise. I mean, we are accepted in the beloved. That's who we are. And we have to live our life as imitations of beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let's stand up and sing and close this series out by praising him for who he is and who he has made us to be.